Welcome to Island Baptist Church, today's sermon is over John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, entitled, Were You There When Jesus Was in the Garden? We are going to be continuing our progression. We started back in March, uh, taking a careful look at the final week of Jesus' life, the final week of uh, his ministry, I should say. He did resurrect and continues to live, so we can't really say uh, final week of his early life, even that, he did 40 days he was afterwards, so... Um, we're going to be in John 18, and we started our progression, like I said, back in March with a, with a question. Uh, were you there? And it started with the question of, were you there when he rode into Jerusalem as king? Were you there last week we saw, or last time we were together? Were you there in the upper room and uh, placing ourselves in, in that place, trying to visualize what it was like? Uh, so much of your New Testament, so much of your Gospels is dedicated to this final week of his ministry, and so we're going to be progressing from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Were you there in the Garden of Gethsemane? And uh, we're going to be in John 18. Did I say that already? I think I did. John 18, and we're going to be in the first 11 verses. And um, if you'll look with me at verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, so it's kind of a loaded, not a question, but it's kind of a loaded statement of what words are you talking about? We saw about the previous five chapters of John. Uh, it says, When he had went forth he is with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples, and it goes on from there, they call the Garden of Gethsemane. But, but back to that first statement, when, when Jesus has spoken these words, that's the previous five chapters. Previous five chapters, among, among other things that he spoke in those previous five chapters is, or, or did, he washed his disciples' feet, he has the Lord's Supper for the first time. Uh, uh, he teaches them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He spoke of heaven. He went, he, the famous verse, John 14, 6, right? I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will return to you and receive you myself so that where I am there may you be also. It's famous. We, every funeral probably has that read in it. Uh, that was John 14. That's part of what, what he spoke. Uh, uh, he goes on in chapter 15 of John to talk about the vine and the branches and then goes on in 17 to, to do his high priestly prayer, praying for the entire church both the time when he was going to create at that time and all the way up until today, those that have never seen him, he says. And so it's a loaded statement. So what, what had he spoken? He'd spoken, by the way, uh, as I understand it, as, as it reads, I should say, which is therefore the way I understand it. I don't try to read in the scriptures anything other than what they say. What they say is, is that from the time he leaves the upper room to the time he reaches the Garden of Gethsemane, you have five chapters of the book of John, the stuff that he spoke. And all that stuff was somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. And we don't even know where the garden, the upper room, we have speculations. But, of course, uh, they've rolled over uh, Jerusalem several times with the steamroller since then, so it's hard to even know where anything is over there. But, uh, nonetheless, it, all these important things. So, it's, like I said, it's very loaded. So, it, so, we have five chapters in the book of John that happened in only a two-hour period. So, just so you know, there you go. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Seven chapters of the book of John that only happened in the last, the last seven days of his ministry. So seven out of 21, I believe, 22. Uh, the book of Mark has the entire half of his, of his book dedicated to nothing but the last seven days of Jesus' ministry. And the same, same is true with Matthew, not, not necessarily completely half, uh, and also Luke. So you get, the, you get the idea, since it's the Holy Spirit, can we agree that inspired this text and not the writers, not the, not the gospel writers, of all due respect to these men, it was the Holy Spirit moving them that way. And so they emphasize the things that, of course, the Holy Spirit wanted them to emphasize. So what do you have? Why do, why do we have place so much emphasis on the last week of Jesus' life? Because the Spirit does. It's a big deal. 
May I just say to you that all the miracles and all the stuff that Jesus did and all the good teachings and the good example that he showed, if, it were not, if the last seven days were not true, that is, his triumphal entry, his meeting with the disciples, ultimately his, his suffering for us beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we're going to see this morning, and then his death and resurrection just seven days later, all that in seven days, if that were not true, then it doesn't matter what he taught. It, let's go home. There's other things. Life is over for us. This, those last seven days that qualify, quantify, and everything is uh, predicated on the fact that he's actually the Savior. We've got one more nut out there teaching some, some pose of good news, and then he's still in the grave? Like I said, let's go home. But that is not what happened. He did exactly what he intended to do. He came and he lived and he died ultimately for us. That was his whole goal, to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't seek and save us by his miracles. He didn't seek and save us by his teachings. He didn't seek and save us by his example that he said, albeit he did all those things and those were awesome. We really appreciated those things. He seek and saved us or sought and saved us by dying a sacrificial death for our sins and resurrecting to prove, number one, that he's a savior. Number two, that he had finished paying them off. When, they're not paid, when your debts aren't paid, you leave them in prison, right? Well, he didn't stay in prison. He was released for our prison for our debts, right? He was released from the grave and lives today at the right hand of the Father according to what the Scriptures teach us. So all this happened in one night. All this stuff that we see here in John, good stuff. But it's all prefaced by what Jesus says here, what it says about Jesus here in John chapter 13. So he begins this whole process of the triumphal injury and the, all the things that happened on that night and all the things by here, what it says here. Notice Jesus knowing, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. The whole reason why he was here was to die. He was born in the, born in the, in the, in the manger. Why? To die. Not to teach good stuff and not to do miracles, although he did those things. But his whole purpose was to come to die. That's the reason why he came, became a physical body. Could not God have stayed in heaven and taught us all these things? Yes. Could not God have sent someone else to be a good example? Yes. So why did God become a man? Because only a man can die and only God can save. And so a man, God became a man because to, only, to do the very thing that we needed. Again, Jesus is not, not at all uh, misinformed by this idea. Notice Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would, not, he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his, his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, knowing that the Father, again, there's that knowing again, had given him all, thing, given all things in his hands, and they had come forth from God and was going back to God. I, I show you this first because there are a lot of theologians, and I would, with a small T, there are some that say that Jesus was a victim, that he was caught up in the circumstances that he was uh, trapped, that the crucifixion and his suffering was a plan B of God. The original plan, they say, is that Jesus was coming to show us a good example. And if it, had we followed this example, there would have been no reason for him to die. And, um, and there's a theological term for that kind of thinking, and here's what it is. Are you ready? It's very powerful. Hogwash. <laughs> That's what that is. Because the Bible does not teach it. Say you don't believe it. But don't tell me the Bible says what I know that it says. Jesus was not plan B. There was not a plan A, all right? Because plan A, a implies a B, doesn't it? It's like, well, if it doesn't work out this way, then we'll have a B. No, there's only been one plan. Scripture says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. 
So Adam and Eve, not even the garden yet, not even a chance to sin yet. And from the foundation of the world, God, of course, knowing all things, know how it's going to go. So the plan of the Godhead from the very beginning, I mean from the very beginning, before the first word of the Bible ever happened, much less ever written, was that, his, that the Son would become a man and remain a man, by the way, resurrected as a Jewish man still in heaven today, coming back. That he would become a man, that he would die for our sins. That was always the plan. It was all the way through a plan. There was no trapping. There was no surprise. There was no trickery. There was none of that. In this final week, you're going you're gonna to see demonstrated here over and over again. Everything he does is calculated. It demonstrates that he's in complete control of all of these events. So let's, let's take a look here. Jesus leaves the upper room. He makes his way down the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, he speaks five chapters of the book of John. Isn't that good? Verse 1, again. Jesus has spoken these words. He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. And by the way, it is a ravine. It's at some places from Jerusalem. You can't just cross it anywhere. It's a cliff. I was just there. It's still just like I saw it. And it's much deeper. It was much deeper then than it is now. The Romans have, like I said, rolled over this whole place with a sting roller and pushed a bunch of stuff off into valleys in every direction, including the Kidron. So it's filled in some. So in Jesus' day, it's like a pew. There's only certain places you can cross this thing. And so they're crossing it in that certain place. So he's crossing the book Kidron with his disciples, verse 2. Now Judas also, remember, he's already told him this very, just an hour ago, that he's going to betray him. Judas is left to do that very thing. Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It seems to me, if Jesus was trying to get away from him, that he wouldn't have gone there for those who think he was trapped. For Jesus, he had nowhere else to go, and so he just went to this place. No, he went to a place where no Judas could find him. He's playing directly into their hands with complete purpose. There you go. He knew what was going to happen. He knew how it was going to go, and he, he could have gone anywhere. So you're the omniscient God, and you know what's going to happen? That's one of the reasons why he doesn't tell us stuff, because you try to mess with it, don't you? Well, that's going to happen with it. I'm going to fix it this way. Well, God doesn't run it like that. God's always known. He always does what he's always said he's going to do. And that's exactly what Jesus was following through on. So, so this process, he goes there because he knew it would be called there. He goes there also because that's where he always went. In, in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. This is the last seven days of his ministry in, in Jerusalem. This is what he did every night. But at night, he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet because there was no room in the inn. There was no room at the beginning, remember, when he's born. There's no room in the inn. In the end, in the inn. Because... This is high season. Passover, you go, go with us to Israel. We were just there. And um, holy cow. I mean, you could bear, there were so many foreigners over there, us real people. They needed to give way. <laughs> Russians and Koreans and Mexicans and everybody, you know. I, I, like I said, I finally heard somebody speaking Spanish. I was like, oh, you know, my native tongue. I only stood one of them. <laughs> At least I understand some of that. Man, talk about a mess. And, and back then, every able-bodied Jew was required to be in that city for three times a year. And one of those was Passover. And so where do they stay? Everywhere. So why is he going out and sleeping on the Mount Olivet? Because that's the only place you had to go. You just go out there and everybody bivouacs, make, puts a tent, sleep underneath the stars or whatever. And that's what he had done. It's probably he had done it every time he'd gone there with his disciples because you can't pay the rent during that time of the year. And um, so... So it's just, it was a common practice. Judas knew exactly where to go look for him. He possibly goes back to the upper room. He's not there. And so he takes this group that guys with him and they go down and find him in the exact place where he would likely be. There it is. 
So he goes there. By the way, Gethsemane is, was an olive garden, and it still is. Like I said, we were just there, and it is still there. This is a picture of the garden of Gethsemane. On the left is a tree trunk. You see it, but you see how high the tree goes? It just goes to the top of the frame, because that is an olive tree, and they cut the top off of it because if you let it grow up like a gigantic oak, how are you going to get to the olives on the top branches? So they keep it short so they can whack it with sticks and knock the olives off. By the way, the olives that come off of this, they make olive oil out of it, and I didn't bring you any because I didn't have that kind of money. <laughs> but there's only a certain amount of olive trees in this Gethsemane now. By the way, that, that olive tree and a couple others in there, uh, they have dated to either the time of Christ, or they say some of them were as much as 100 years old by the time Jesus was in there kneeling, uh, praying for us. So what, what an incredible place. You're looking at one of the trees. You can see that here's a little uh, priest over here walking down a pathway. You can see the size of that trunk. Well, I mean, after 2,000 years, they get pretty big. So that, it was an olive press or an olive grove back then. The word Gethsemane literally means olive press. And so obviously you wouldn't have a press in a place where you didn't also have olive trees. And so that's the whole idea. It was a special place where they grew special olives, and they would press those olives uh, in the same place, and that's, that's what you have there. Uh, it's here, listen, that Jesus, in this garden, that Jesus fights and wins a fight that was lost, fights and wins a fight on our behalf that was lost on our behalf in another garden 2,000 years earlier, or more than that, more than 2,000 years earlier. Adam and Eve fought a fight in a garden, right? And they lost, but they lost it for all of us because they, they became sinners and they gave birth to what? Sinners. That's what they got. That's what we got. Jesus, not a sinner, fought another fight, in another same fight in another garden and won. They fell to the will of man. He, he gave in 100% to the will of the Father. And so this beautiful thing that takes place there, it was a place where Jesus had great anguish. Of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the part of, of as Jesus is there. He's so stressed. He's so pressured that literally he sweats blood. And it's a physical condition that you can get in that much pressure. And you're near death, by the way, in which capillaries begin to break in your skin. And as the sweat comes out of your pores, so does blood. Now, when you're like that, you're in a bad way. And he was in the garden under anguish for you and I exactly that same way. This physical condition, like I said, you're, you're near death when you take the, get to that place. Remember what I told you, this place is called the olive press. That's what Gethsemane means. It's Aramaic for olive press. Gethsemane, olive press. Now, olives, what they would do is they would take, when you go with us in the fall, we're going, by the way, 2020, back to Israel. When you go with us in the fall, it's when they're picking the olives. And they're picking the, the dates. And so we, they make olive oil in front of us. They'll crush it with this huge stone. And they take the, the crushings and they place it on top of a, basically a filter. And they're going to do a press. But before they do the press, the oil that runs out naturally is what they call virgin olive oil. It's unpressed. And then the second pressing is a little darker. The third pressing is even darker. They, do, they press it three exact times. Now, three times is very interesting. And maybe you may think coincidental. I do not. The fact that Jesus in this garden, the garden of the olive press, prays for us how many times? I can't tell you, but <laughs> three times. He goes to the Father and says, this cup may pass from me, right? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he goes back and finds his disciples asleep. They had too much turkey. He comes back, prays the same thing. Three times he does it. Likewise, in the press, if you will, for our lives. The oil of life that's coming from him uh, literally 
and figuratively is pictured here. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 53, 5 that promises Jesus is going to do this 600 years before he does. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So let me ask you something. So, so Jesus is praying in the garden. This is God the Son praying to God the Father by means of God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity all involved there, praying to the Father, if there not be some other way. Three times he prays. What, did Jesus not know how to pray and get through to God? Oh, my goodness. Sure he did. Three times he prays, and the answer, of course, is no, there is no other way. Why? Because he goes straight to the cross. The very next day. He's hanging on the cross the very next day. So the answer to the question of, is there some other way to get to God other than the sacrifice the, 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 the sacrifice, the crucifixion of God's one and only Son, the shedding of his blood for our sins, and his resurrection three days later, if there was some other way, guys, they would have come up with it in the garden. In fact, they would have come up with it from all eternity because it says before, in the, from the beginning, Christ was slain. In the mind of God, in the, God, in the mind of the Godhead, Jesus was already sacrificed before Adam and Eve were ever created, before there's ever a garden of Gethsemane. So I'm thinking that during that time, and especially in the garden, when he's being crushed literally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, that they would have come up, you know what, I didn't think about this option. So let me just say, say this very clearly. It is the epitome of arrogance and blasphemy for us to say that there's some other way than Jesus. I, I can't imagine the level of arrogance that it takes for us to say, well, God can come up with a way, but I've got a way. We've got a way. We voted and come up with another option to get to God. I'm going to make my peace, as they say, with the man upstairs. No, you're not. He's made his peace with you, and it's either opt-in for you or opt-out. On or off. Toggle the switch. That's what it's going to be, because I'm telling you, had there been another way, they would have come up with it, and it's arrogant tremendously, not to mention blasphemous, to say, I've got another way. I know a better, or maybe a better way. As if, as if God would have uh, not figured that out, had there been. So they come after him with this large continuum. Let's keep reading here, verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, some of your translations say band, others just say uh, a large group of men, right? Or, or a detachment of men, and that's, uh, it's important that we translate that word in a second. The officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches, and weapons. So, so they show up with this band, and by the way, this is, this is a very specific number. Literally, the Greek says a cohort, which is a, very, it's a specific detachment of a legion. A legion was 6,000 at full strength, 6,000 men at full strength. So one-tenth of that would give us 600 men. That's a cohort or a band. So Judas doesn't show up with, I don't know what the movies you've seen, a couple, 20, 30, even 100 men. 600 armed men come uh, probably mostly Jews, possibly Romans also. They all show up uh, in the dark against 13 or 12, I guess, minus Judas, uh, against them. Why would they do that? Because they're scared of him, that's why. Wouldn't you be? Let's see, he's walked on water, he's fed 5,000, he's healed sick, blind, he's raised the dead. He raised Lazarus right outside this city. Everybody knows it, plenty of people there to see it. So you're scared of him, I would say, not scared enough to not do it. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back a second time, people are going to raise arms against him. And that's the dumbest thing I could ever think of. 
They're going to be very scared of them. It says they're going to be trembling and hiding in the rocks and all kinds of stuff, but not scared enough to fall on, a, on their knees and ask for mercy from him. That's scared enough. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And you need to be scared enough. They weren't. They weren't. And so, so they come out, and, it's, and their number is going to be important in just a minute. 600 men is a bunch. But let's continue reading here. And, and by the way, look at verse 4, and, and, let, and let me ask this question to begin with. Does this sound to you like a victim? Jesus, therefore, verse 4, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? So they come waddling through there. And by the way, it's, it's Passover night, always a full moon. Other than there being clouds that night, they would have had a pretty good vision that night. Plus, they were coming out with torches. So why is it that Jesus has to go and show himself to them? It's not like he's hiding behind a tree. I mean, they're pretty good-sized trees, but they're, he's not hiding from them. He goes out and presents himself. His disciples, like I said, have had too much turkey. They're still asleep. He goes over and finds them and says, who are you looking for, my friends? And notice, they're still, they're so scared they don't say you. Notice, they just said, well, they answered him and said, Jesus, the Nazarene, he said to them, I am he, Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with him. So he says, listen, okay, here I am. Why don't you get me? And let me just say this very carefully. Had he not yielded to them, there weren't enough men, there aren't enough men on the planet, nor weapons to capture him, because he's the son of God. Jesus says it himself, John chapter 10, I lay, my, I lay down my life, only to take a notice. Who does? I do. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. You don't capture me. You don't kill me. You don't take me. You don't do anything to me unless I give you the okay. And notice, what is he doing here? He's lying himself to be found. He goes to a place where he'd naturally go. He goes out when they come to him. He goes straight to them. Can I help you, my friends? Here I am. And then when they say to him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, even though they could see him, they still say, I'm not going to touch him. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, no, no. They're scared of him for the right reasons. Like I said, just not scared enough. Verse 6, so when they therefore had said to him, I am, when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back, that is the whole 600 of them. And isn't that crazy? Fall to the ground. Isn't that crazy? I think that's really wild. I really, I really like that. Several levels, I like that. Two things here for us to talk about. First of all, his answer. Now, the answer that he gives here is, is a response that's very unusual. It's not correct English unless you're trying to make a point, which, of course, he is. The answer he gives here, the Greek doesn't say, I am he, that he is supplied. Some of your translations have it in, a, in, in italics. Do you see it? It's because it's supplied just for the, the sake of the smoothness of translation so you can understand that he's making the point. But actually, he's making somewhat a different point. It sort of takes away from the power of his communication there. He's actually com commanding, or I should say, announcing himself as the I am. We're looking for Jesus. I am. And of course, our, our immediate response is, I am he, right? Nope. That's not what he says. I am. I am. This is a consistent thing that John, by the way, is putting forth as his observations of the life of Christ, John being also in this uh, Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, but having been with Jesus through his whole ministry, the whole book of John is, is built around the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, I am. Seven different, seven different I am statements are, is what the whole book of John is built around. 
But very famously, Jesus says this in the book of John in response to the, the Pharisees with regards to who he was and how he would know certain things about Abraham and other ancestors of the Jews. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, it's 2,000 years before Jesus, I am. Not I was. So what is he saying? He's naming himself the God of the Jews. He's naming himself the same name, if you could call it that, that, that God gives himself when Moses says, I can't go to talk to the Jews. I don't even know what your name is. He says, you tell them that I am has sent you. It's not a name. It's a declaration of existence. It's, it's a declaration of both past and not just present, but also future. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement of continual existence. I am, believe me, he knew exactly what he was saying, and so did they. You remember what happened after he said this to the Pharisees? They tried to stone him because he was calling himself God. Well, guess what he's doing here in the Garden of Gethsemane? You're coming looking for me, Jesus of Nazareth? You found him. I am. And of course, most of them being Jews, they hear the name of God. They either one are going to try to strangle him or two, if, like I said, if they're not quite scared enough, they're still going to fall. What do they do? They fall backwards on the ground. As you expect, again, they're, they're, his answer and their reaction, given the way he refers to himself, I mean, this, their reaction makes sense. He reveals his deity, and they fall backwards, all 600 of them, onto the ground. And every bit of this is in fulfillment of prophecy. Several places in the Old Testament predicting that this very thing would happen. Psalm 40, speaking of the Messiah. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion, who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backwards and brought to dishonor, who wish, who wish me evil predicted that. Every part of this is Jesus just simply fulfilling the things that the scriptures said he would do. Even the group that comes to get him. The fact that they would fall backwards. Already been written. Nothing new. Do you know who he is? The son of the living God? May I say to you, you need to have a personal experience with him. In fact, the Bible demands it. You will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you have a personal experience with this one. The one who says, I am him. I am the Savior. He is the Savior. He's paid for our sins. The question is, is he your Savior? Is he your Savior? You can know that. In fact, the Bible says you can absolutely know that. You can know for sure today that you have everlasting life. Not hope for it, not pray for it, not have some pastor uh, send you off into heaven the moment you die, last rites or whatever. Listen, no, you can know today. Everyone who believes or calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not not. Not yet sometime in the future. Today. Believe on him today. Trust in him today. Do you know who he is? The son of the living God. So, so they came after him with this large contingent. And he basically has to help them do his, their job. Look at verse 7. And again, so they're all on the ground. On their backs. I'd like to see that. There's just something in me would like to see that anyway. They drove back and fell to the ground. And again, when he asked them, who do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, these disciples that are with me. And he did this in, again, fulfillment of prophecy, that the word might be fulfilled, which spoke of those who thou who hast given to me, I have lost not one. So Jesus says, listen, if you're here to get me, just get me and don't get these. These are innocent. Don't, don't take them. And again, He's having to help them. It's like they're on their back and he's having to slap them. Come on, come on, come on, get up now. Who are you after again? Um, uh, uh, who are we after again? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. 
like I said, you're looking at him. So since you've got me, you don't need them. Again, back to the whole victim thing. He's caught. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's taken by surprise. He's taught, kept by trick. You know, he's telling them everything to do here, and they're doing it. And watch what happens. So, so he's telling them, listen, you don't need to get these guys. And even now Peter makes it even harder for that to be true because Peter pulls out a sword and starts hacking away. Peter misses and cuts off this guy's ear. And let's give him a break, okay? He's a fisherman. He's not a swordsman. All right, so Peter's... Let's give him a break. Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right, swinging at his head, but missed. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now, don't you think that would get him arrested? Don't you think? Well, it doesn't. Because Jesus is telling them, you're not going to do this. And they do exactly what he says. They've got 600 men and one man standing there, and they're out to arrest him, and the man standing there is telling them what to do, and they're doing it. But yet he's a victim, crying out loud. The cup, he says to Peter, which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it, he says? This cup is speaking of one that, was, that we were supposed to drink. It's a cup of judgment. It's a cup of wrath. It's a cup that we all earned because of our sin. You deserve, you deserve to drink, if you will, to the dregs, something, uh, figuratively speaking, that's horrible and that it's everlasting, and it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Well, Jesus drank that cup for you, Jesus paid that price for you. Jesus took it down. It's a cup of judgment. Here's just multiple examples in the scriptures of God referring it to, to it the same way. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Jeremiah speaking, take this wine cup of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. It's this judgment of God. Well, the judgment of God, listen, who, if Jesus doesn't drink it, guess who has to? You do. Me, you, all of us. You want to know why it was so bad on the cross? Because that's what was coming to you. You want to see what was coming to you? Look at the cross. But it wasn't going to be just one day. It's going to be forever. Jesus, the eternal one, took your eternity right there and he paid for it. That's why he could say that whosoever believes in him will never perish because he perished for us. He perished for us. He took it for us. That's why I'm saying you must have an encounter with the Savior in which you take him personally as your Savior. It's not enough to know that he saves. The devil knows that. You have to accept him personally. Confess him personally. Trust him personally. It's a decision that you have to make. No one can make it for you. So he's clearly in charge here because he's telling them what to do. He's telling them who to arrest and who not to arrest. And then he says, I, even Peter, who tries to defend all this, he stops him. Of course, we know the rest of the story doesn't say it here, but Jesus turns around and heals this guy who's gotten the ear chopped off. In fact, the rest of the story I think is important. I want us to consider it here. Matthew 26, 52 and 53, Matthew tells us more of what kind of happened in that little exchange there as Peter hits the guy with a sword. Jesus said to, to him, that is Peter, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, wow, what a statement. I'm not sure if you've ever got any old Baptists here. I'm looking at some. I know some others here. The rest of you just want to be Baptists, I know. But, but maybe, maybe they allowed you to sing some good gospel hymns in wherever church you're from. Maybe you remember the song from the 1960s, 1970s, He Could Have Sent... 10,000 angels. Write that song. Nod your head. I'll keep singing. <laughs> Nod your head. Yes, pastor, we know that song. Written by a guy by the name of Ray Overholt in 1958. Ray Overholt was a Michiganer, a country and western singer. 
uh, not a Christian when he wrote this song. He could have sent 10,000 angels to destroy the world. Um, Ray Overholt wrote a song because that was typical for country and western singers in that day to, to involve themselves in gospel because gospel made a lot of money. And he actually made a lot of money on that song, even though he was not a Christian when he wrote it. But as a result of the, um, the backlash, and it wasn't a bad backlash, but the correction, I should say, that he got over what that song says, it's inaccurate. Because it, does it say... That he could, well, I did, did I put it up there? Yeah. Does it say he could have sent 10,000 angels? What does it say? 12 legions of angels. It's not the same number. It's a vastly different number, in fact. We're going to see in just a second. Anyway, Ray Overt writes his song, makes a ton of money over it, but people begin to say to him, by the way, it doesn't say 10,000. He didn't know what 12 legions meant. He's just throwing a number out there. Thought 10,000 sounded really big. And come to find out, he was wrong by uh, about 62,000. Uh, because 12 legions of, a legion in full strength, I've already told you, is 6,000. And uh, 12 times, it doesn't say, by the way, 12,000, it says more than 12 legions. So, or 12, I'm sorry, 12 legions. So that's more than 72,000 angels. You know how many angels that is? Plenty <laughs> to do anything. More than enough. 72,000 angels, that's what Jesus says. Do you not know that I could have called down more? I could, have got it. I could have gone as far as you want to go, however many angels there are. He could have called them. Uh, add that math, so 72,000 angels to the math that we get from this statement in 2 Kings 19.35. So the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army. And King Hezekiah, who was a godly king, and King Isaiah, I'm sorry, Prophet Isaiah, who existed during that time and was prophesying to the nation of Israel, God sent a message to both of them telling them that don't worry about this army. I will take care of them by the time daylight gets, gets here. And so this is what God did. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed, notice one angel, and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000, all men, all armed. And when people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. And so the king doesn't get killed in this process and hightails it back to Assyria and never comes back into Israel again. So let's do this math. So 72,000 angels, Jesus said he could have called on. And if an angel is capable of these numbers, which apparently he is, at a minimum, 72,000 angels each taking out 185,000 apiece would give us a total of 13.3 billion that they could have handled. Yeah, 72,000 angels would really do something. And I heard commentators say, yeah, those angels could have stopped them, that mob. Oh, yeah, they really could have stopped. They could have stopped the world. Jesus had the full capacity and authority to make it all go away. He did not. You say he's a victim. He's not a victim. Definitely not. Uh, listen, if God wanted us dead, we'd be dead. If God wanted us God, we'd be God. That'd be it. If Jesus had looked up in heaven and said, may the host of heaven come forth, we wouldn't be talking today. He could have ended it. The point is, he was in full authority and full knowledge with full ability and, and full prerogative. He did not. Jesus was captured and crucified in weakness, but hear me carefully, it was voluntary only. It's not that he could not oppose it. He would not oppose it. Jesus, to protect us, listen, could not protect himself. That's the whole purpose why he comes is to deliver us, Right? Well, he can't deliver himself and deliver us. Because to deliver himself would mean oblivion, obliteration. 
Even the next day as they hang him on the cross and these knucklehead Pharisees go up and start saying stuff like, if he was the son of God, let him take himself down from the cross. If he's really the Savior, let him come down. Well, yeah, if he comes down, he can only save one. But if he stays up, he can save all. That's what he does. Not because he can't, but because he won't. Not because he doesn't. Not because he isn't interested in his self-care. Self it's because he's interested more in our care. Jesus gave it all for us. It's blasphemous to say that there's some other way that he could have gotten out of it. Right? Or that, that or he, I guess he could have. That, that, that there was no way for him to get out of it. No, definitely not. I'm going to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes as we think about the things that have said here. I said earlier that you must have a personal encounter with this Jesus who is the Savior. It's not a question of whether he's the Savior. He didn't need our vote. He doesn't need our acknowledgement to be the Savior. He's the Savior. There doesn't have to be a single person in heaven due to him for him to be the Savior. He is the Savior. The question is, is he our Savior? Have you... Have you, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to think about your own personal life. Have you had a personal encounter with the Savior of the world? He came to save us. He did it in a very unusual way, paying for our sins by dying on a cross and resurrecting to prove that he was the Savior. He did it in a very unusual way because it was the only way. There is no other way. There's not a way to be better, to be good people. For our good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds, for our church going to outweigh our, our wayward going. There's not a way for sins to be. That doesn't pay for sins. It just means we've learned from them, but it doesn't pay for them. The ones we've committed, we've committed. There's, we've broken the laws, and the laws can't be undone. No, the, the penalty of the law now has to be paid for, and the good news is, is that God's already done that. God himself became a man, because only God can save, and only man can die. And he died for us, suffering anguish for us in the garden, going all the way to the cross, giving up his own life, rising again the three days later, proving that he had paid for our sins, proving that he's the Savior. Now the ball's in our court to trust him, to place our faith in him, to as many as believe him, it says, to them he gave the right to, to become the children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, Pastor, that's just too simple. Listen, it's not your heaven. It's not mine either. We don't make the rules. God says, if you believe on the Son, you will have everlasting life. Would you have a personal encounter with him right there in your heart, right now? If you've never trusted him as Savior, would you say just a simple prayer or something like this in your heart to him, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I know that you're the Savior. I want you to be mine I want the salvation that you bought and paid for, starting with your anguish in that garden. I want that salvation to be mine. He paid dearly for it, and he offers it to you for free. It's just a present. It's a gift. He's given away eternal life. Would you accept it? God, I thank you so much for the gift of eternal life. Free to us, expensive for you. Paid dearly for it ever so dearly so that we might have everlasting life. You took our hell so that we could have your heaven, that we could have your life. You took our death. You took our punishment. 
You took everything. You drank that cup to the bottom so that we could have the cup of blessing, the cup of life and forgiveness. We revel in it today. We praise you. We exalt you today, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We, we begin this, this, this holy week as we think of all the things you've done for us, Lord. We place our gaze upon you and we trust you. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.